Hello. So today I want to talk a little bit about an experiment that I've been doing during this whole uh, coronavirus thing while I've been uh, crashing with my parents, uh, writing this out, uh, helping them abide and helping, letting them help me abide. Uh, and it starts maybe 25 years ago when we were living back in Southfield, uh, the house where I grew up until I was about 10. Uh, one day we were at our neighbors, an elderly couple named uh, Harold and Angie, who were kind of friends of the family, and they definitely liked us because they never had kids of their own. So they were happy to kind of have us as surrogate grandchildren. I remember going over there and, you know, she would give us candy and the father would take me down to the basement and show me his tools. It was kind of a nice little relationship we had. We were over there one day out on their back patio in the backyard and there was a bird eating bird seed uh, on the ground that they would throw out for wild birds. And this bird was very, very tame. I remember walking up to it and it did not fly away the way wild birds tend to do. It was not skittish at all. It seemed to actually walk towards me. And this, of course, caught the attention of my entire family. And I remember the old man, uh, Harold, went and grabbed it and uh, put it into a pillowcase, you know, very gently, because it seemed like there was something about this bird. It wasn't just a normal bird. And we ended up, like, taking it home my dad made a cage out of like chicken wire and duct tape. He kind of fashioned this thing uh, on the fly, and we put it in uh, put it in the cage and let it kind of hang out. And it was definitely something that was domesticated. We could tell it was not a wild bird. It ended up being a cockatiel, the Latino variety, meaning that it lacked pigmentation, so it was yellow instead of you know, usual gray. And we ended up keeping this thing for a few years. Unfortunately, the thing tragically uh, died. I think in 1996. Uh, close of my uh, middle school years. Uh, I remember coming down to the basement and I found it sitting on top of the bookshelves and it wasn't responsive to very much. It turns out it had found a wire, chewed on it and got an electric shock that left it in a fairly bad state. It passed away about a day later. Uh, it was unfortunate. But my freshman year of high school, about a year later, I decided I wanted a replacement. So I asked my parents if we could get another one. So we got another cockatiel I went down to a pet shop. This one ended up being gray. And that was, yeah, 1997. April, I want to say. So we got one that was about three months old. And the lifespan for cockatiels in captivity is roughly 15 to 20 years. You know, 20 being if you're really, really lucky. Uh, this cockatiel, my parents still have it. This bird has been around for a very, very long time. It's, uh, I guess, it's going to be 24 in January, if its, uh, if its birthday was correct when we bought it. So that's pretty, pretty old. As far as cockatiels go, that's a geriatric. Um, the thing used to be able to fly. He can't fly anymore. He just sort of flaps his wings, and he can keep himself in the air on a trajectory that's ultimately downward. But he, he can't really fly. I think he has probably birdie arthritis in his little wings, and can only do so much. In any case, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where the kids want a dog, but the parents end up taking care of the dog. It was a pet that I wanted when I was in high school. And, you know, it was projected to live, what, 15 years? And so we didn't really think this through at the time. Uh, I ended up leaving, going out and moving out to my own place in about 2005. And the bird has been with my parents ever since. My parents, uh, my dad doesn't really like it. He's always expressed contempt for it because it's loud. It poops every 20 minutes. Uh, it's, you know, not very cuddly feely. I don't think he ever really saw the benefit of it. 
And my mother made an effort to like take the thing out and be with it, like socialize it on a regular basis. You know, she would have let it ride around on her shoulder uh, on a fairly regular basis. But a few years ago, my parents got a cat. Uh, my brother and his wife brought a cat home and it caused the cat that they already had there to go through some real distress. It started pulling out its own hair. And so my parents ended up taking that that cat because my brother and his wife didn't want to send it back to the shelter. And so the bird got much less attention from my mother at this point because the cat and the bird are natural enemies. They're kind of irreconcilable. So the bird and his cage were relegated to where my father, my father's man cave, basically, where he goes to like lie down and watch television. It's a door he could shut. Uh, the cat was not allowed in that room. And the bird was, was in his cage most of the time, but occasionally he would come out and sit with my father. And as a result, he's bonded with my father quite a bit. But the man cave is on the second floor, and my dad is not. We try to discourage him from doing stairs for his own safety. Uh, stairs are something that, of course, all elderly people have to give up at some point. So the bird has been brought down to the first floor. And, of course, whenever he sees my parents, he wants to get out and hang out with them. But So he squawks incessantly and loudly. But my parents don't want him out very much. One, because of the cat. And two, I don't think they really, you know, care much for him. At least my dad doesn't. I think my mom, you know, puts up with him. But his noisiness has been bothering them lately. This has been going on for a couple months. So a couple weeks ago, I thought to myself, I'm going to look up and see what I can do to make this bird shut up. And I think it just needs to be socialized. It, it needs to be socialized with people, which wasn't really happening at all. And it needs to be it needs some reassurance that the person it's bonded with who is my father is not abandoned it and my father is not too keen on having the bird around like he'll if i were to take the bird to him sitting there watching television i think he would be okay with it you know lock the cat in the basement and give the bird some time with my father but uh you know it's not something that they're too keen on doing so i've been working on the second floor in a little room where I have my office, so to speak. And I've been taking the bird up there pretty much my entire work day. My coworkers definitely get a kick out of this. I'm on Zoom calls with them and I have this bird sitting on my shoulder. They really like it. They're really excited about it. They always, people of course ask his name, which you all are probably wondering. His name is Sprite. Uh, for those of you who might be wondering, I remember when I was in high school reading about Bill Watterson, who's the author of Calvin and Hobbes. He had a great tabby cat that he named Sprite. And so we got this gray cockatiel it kind of felt like a good name you know one syllable short sweet uh but that's where i got the name from basically just stolen and so anyway sprite has been spending his work days with me for the past couple of weeks and he's actually gotten far less neurotic like you can kind of see like competing instincts in an animal sometimes and that was definitely the way he was when i first arrived home for the last three months or so he sits there and squawks because he wants to get out so i would go open the cage door and uh, wait for him to come out he wouldn't you could see his putting putting his little foot up like i want to come out i would put my hand in the cage and he would just snap at it very aggressively not in a friendly fashion like he did not want anything to do with my hand he clearly wanted to come out but he was not comfortable with me or with the idea of stepping onto someone's hand he did that with all of us too it wasn't just me it was also my father who ostensibly he's bonded with so I decided I think maybe I need to do what this thing does not want for its own long-term good, that whole thing. So the first few days, I had to like grab the thing in my hand as gently as I could and pull it out of the cage 
and put it on my shoulder and then take it upstairs to work with me. And once it was out of the cage and it was sitting somewhere comfortably, it would get situated and it seemed very, very happy. I think it was very, very happy to be out of its cage and to be with a human being. You know, the thing is a parrot. It does need socialization. So I think ultimately it was happy. And it has gotten better. It's gotten far less neurotic. You know, it. Uh, I, I will open the cage door now, put my hand at the door, and he'll just come down and step onto it. Uh, he's gotten at least comfortable enough with me that he doesn't fear doing this anymore. Still squawks quite a bit. Uh, but if I, you know, take him upstairs with me and sit in my little workroom, he's uh, very, very happy. So I like this. I like this has given me kind of a sense of purpose. I can like give this bird some socialization, make it make its life a little bit better. I could like give it some interactions and some whatever a life outside of its cage that it probably would not be having with my parents. And part of the challenge is, of course, the cat. The cat is definitely a threat. The cat has pretty much ignored the bird since we've had it, but since I've been taking it out and carrying it around the house carefully, always with my eye on the cat, uh, he has started to take an interest in it. He started to stalk it. Uh, this morning, I was sitting by his cage by the fireplace with him on my knee, and the cat peeked its head around the corner and was staring right at it, clearly with stalking eyes. It's like, I'm, this is something I need to hunt. Just in, instinct kicks in. You can tell what it's doing. So I pretty much leave the cat alone. I know if you stare at a cat, it takes it as a threat. I usually just slow blink the cat and don't look away. It tends to make them comfortable. Just don't pay attention to them. Ignore them. I think that makes cats generally like you more. Well, it depends on the cat. Uh, this cat, that typically works. Uh, in this case, I put the bird away and proceeded to stare the cat down. Just glared at her. And, you know, she kind of like feigned disinterest, like looked away. Uh, she's very, very smart. Cats are very, very good about that. Like if you, if they're stalking something and you kind of get, they get wind, the thing is maybe aware of them, they will just sort of look away and feign disinterest, but it is totally fake. You know, they're just trying to say, like, oh, I don't care. I'm not paying attention. They want you to let their guard down so they can snap in. They're very, very smart that way. But of course, human beings are smarter if they're being attentive. So, yeah, it would be very, very difficult for what I'm doing with the bird now to happen if I wasn't there. And so this is what I've been doing. The thing is, uh, you know, it's okay. It's not a very cuddly thing, but it is awfully sweet. It does sit there and just sort of grind its beak, which is a sign of comfort, close its eyes and fall asleep. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice to have this little thing. And besides, I can kind of relate to, you know, a creature that wants some social interaction, but like it was doing two weeks ago, I would open the cage door, put my hand in, and it would snap. It wants to come out. It wants to interact, but it's also fearful of doing it. It's kind of skittish. I can certainly relate to that, I think. So I have a bit of compassion for this thing for personal reasons. I like having it sit up in my office. The thing is, the where my parents live, they have a very large amount of woods behind their house. And right now there's no leaves on the trees. So you can kind of see through like maybe a third of a mile to a half a mile away. If you squint, you can see during the day the houses uh, that are in the trees. Like there's a neighborhood that you can make out if you look carefully. And of course at night the lights pour through. So you know that there's not just woods indefinitely, but 
it, there's enough there that uh, during the during the summertime when everything is green, it's very very dense, and there's no there's no indication whatsoever that there's any anything beyond the woods. It just seems like it goes on forever if you if you look into them, if you peer into them during the summertime. <clears throat> but the office I have is on the second floor, and my aunt went up there at some point, and it overlooks the woods. And she said, you know, the view from up here on the second floor of, your, of the woods here looks like you live in a tree house. Like it looks like you live in a tree and you're just part of the woods, and it's very, very true. And the trees themselves are old. It's an old patch of woods, so they're probably maybe two, two and a half times the actual height of the house. And I like having the bird on my knee during the workday because I'll sit him there. I'll sit there with him on the window and he will look up at the branches of the trees against the skyline, you know, the bare ones that are not, um, you know, not covered in leaves right now. They're just the big sticks, essentially, big uh, complicated fractals of sticks. And I kind of wonder what he's thinking. He'll just peer up there and look at the, look at the sky and I kind of wonder what he's thinking about when he's looking up there. Like instinctually, does he think that's where I'm supposed to be? Is he curious about it? Uh, I kind of try to try to imagine what he might be thinking. It's of course even more interesting. This morning there were several dozen birds in the trees. Like sometimes a flock of several different kinds will kind of find its way to the woods and just sit there. And of course, then he gets really interested. He's, he's watching. He's watching the birds. See them fly around. And when there's a hawk. Uh, something there, there are, I think they're hawks that fly overhead, very, very large birds. He definitely sees them and he latches on and he has a very, very clear outward fear reaction. You know, he, uh, gets freaked out, uh, by the hawks. So, you know, something instinctual is kicking up and it's kind of curious to wonder exactly what it is. I wonder about animals. There's a, like, I do wonder what gets activated inside of animals under what conditions and then what gets activated in this cockatiel under what conditions. And for that matter, what gets activated in humans under what conditions? Uh, sea turtles, for example, are, you know, they get, they hatch, uh, not in the presence of their mother on the beach. And they know, they know that they have to run as fast as they can towards the ocean. And once they get in there, they have to swim. Now, nobody tells them to do this. They just instinctually know. They're born knowing this is what they have to do, and they have to go fast because there are birds in the sky waiting to pick them off. I heard this is called an innate releasing mechanism. Essentially, it's instilled behavior. It's kind of a reflex that is instinctual. It's not a taught behavior. It's a it's an inborn behavior. And there are there are kinds of birds. I forget what they are. I think they're songbirds. But the babies and the mothers they will have a reaction to uh, the image of a hawk flying overhead. Now you can have like the silhouette of other large birds fly overhead. They don't react to that. Only a hawk. You can have a fake hawk silhouette, something that is clearly shaped the way a hawk is. If that flies overhead, like an artificial piece of cardboard shaped like a hawk, for example, uh, they will have the same reaction. So it's funny to think that they know. They know the difference between these big birds uh, they can they can distinguish, and the reaction only crops up if it's the correct kind of big bird. And of course, this reaction would probably still be in the little birds instinctually, even if hawks went extinct. And so you kind of wonder what exactly is there in us that activates us instinctually, emotionally? What is there that we react to that, uh, you know, has gone extinct? 
there's just imprints of a, of a bygone era that no longer matter, but they're still there. They're vestigial instinctual reactions. Uh, some things that are not vestigial would be snakes and spiders. Now, human beings, of course, have a fear reaction to all kinds of things. They're afraid of weapons, for example. You point a gun at somebody, they're usually going to be afraid. But the thing is, the fear reaction of a, of a gun, the fear reaction of a human being to a gun versus the human being's fear reaction to, let's say, a spider or a snake or the image of a snake or a spider is much, much faster in the brain. Neuroscience has found that there's kind of an, there's an instinctual inborn, you could say innate releasing mechanism that makes human beings shy away from spiders. It happens very, very quickly. And of course, this makes sense because where we evolved, there were spiders and there were snakes and having a very, very quick reaction to those things could mean the difference between you surviving and not surviving. You know, spiders where we evolved in Africa and in the Middle East, uh, they were, of course, much more deadly than they are in the United States. Then that's not anything you want to mess with. Same thing with snakes. Snakes in Africa. Uh, you've all seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he goes into the uh, actual place where the Ark of the Covenant lies. What is it? The Well of Souls. Dangerous snakes and dangerous spiders in that area of the, of the world. So it makes sense that we evolve to avoid these sorts of things. And, of course, I think the image of a spider, just the silhouette, is probably something that would you know instill a fear reaction as well. So we do have... Um, things imprinted on us that it, that provoke a fear reaction. And uh, yeah, just makes me wonder what is there that has died out? And to what extent is this? That's instinctual, but I do wonder, like I touched upon earlier, how does that impact us emotionally? What sort of things make us feel emotional? In any case, that that is the bird and the great bird experiment. And I have been talking about dreams lately. I think that dreams mean something. And I've been trying to analyze my own dreams and figure out what it is that they are trying to say to me. And for the most part, it's usually a mystery. It's kind of one of those questions you ask, and it may not be a question that has an answer, but just posing the, posing the question and trying to arrive at some kind of answer without any kind of finality, just sort of journeying without actually reaching any kind of destination, is what I find to be a helpful reflective process. And I think it's very the kind of introspection that helps me learn more about myself. However, I do think that there are some dreams that I've had that send a very, very clear message. And I'll, ta- I'll talk about one in brief, which ties into this directly. Right around the time I started taking the bird out and doing this experiment where I was trying to expose it, get it out of its cage and let it have something of a life, let it see things. Uh, I had a dream in which I had my bird on my hand. And I knew I had to take it back to its cage. And there was two routes I could go. One was the quick route. You know, the cage was just like maybe a hop, skip, and a jump away. And there was a longer route I could take. Like it was actually outside. It was through a neighborhood. Uh, it was like going down to a street where there were lots of stores and bars and walking down that street. And then eventually it would circle back and, you know, I could put my bird in my cage. And I thought, I'll take my bird with me. In the dream, I'm thinking, I'll, I'll let him see some stuff. This will be interesting. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember getting to the end of that route, getting to the end of this and getting back to the cage and realizing I didn't have my bird with me anymore. And I had come across a bunch of people who were interested in like having some drinks at a bar, doing some shopping, something like that. And I had said, oh, sure, that's great. I'll just be very, very careful and keep my bird with me. 
And I remember I had lost him at some point along the way. He was somewhere back on the street. And I remember yelling out to him and somebody yelled back, you know, he's not here. Stop yelling. You're just wasting your time. You're not going to find him this way. And I, I started walking back down the road to find him. And I realized this thing is, it's gone. You know, he won't respond to me calling out to him. He doesn't know how to find his way back like a homing pigeon. And there's too many possible places he could be. I'm never going to find him. I realize he's just gone forever. This is an irretrievable loss. And I woke up the next morning and I, I thought about this dream and I thought, you know, I think that means I should be very, very careful. This is before I had the sense that the cat was even stalking the bird. But I realize you're doing something that's probably in the bird's best interest, but don't get complacent. Keep on your guard. Because if you don't, uh, this can go away very, very quickly. And I wasn't really sure about that. I, I have been, whenever I have the bird with me, I'm, I'm hyper vigilant about maybe him suddenly flying away in a situation where the cat would be able to pounce on him before I could intercede. But the cat hasn't really shown much interest. I'm, I'm just being careful without really any sort of reason. This morning, of course, as I mentioned, this is not a baseless fear. I have to be very, very careful because the cat is very interested in getting the bird. It's a hunter. It's, it's I guess that's a, you know, its own innate releasing mechanism. It sees something that is prey, it knows, and so it snaps into action, probably without, without even thinking. I don't, I don't know if cats think or not. It's kind of curious to know. I, I, I somebody once told me that they knew somebody who was a scientist and her specialty was fish cognition. Now that's interesting because fish are like the most distant ancestors, like of multicellular organisms, the five classes of life, like what is it, fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and birds. That's the way I learned it when I was very, very young. I don't know if those are still the major classifications, but of course fish are the oldest ones. You know, all this comes from the sea. And so it's interesting to think that fish have some kind of cognition. You know, you look at fish in a fish tank, they don't seem to have a whole lot going on, but of course they have to have enough going on that they're more than just, there has to be a kind of learning that's accessible to any sort of organism. And that includes fish, of course. Fish are probably not intelligent the way we would think of as intelligent, but there are things in the ocean that of course have cognition that is in many ways superior to our own. I mean, cephalopods are a case in point. Octopuses and squids, they are, yeah, they are, they are incredibly intelligent. And of course, I think that any organism uh, is sufficiently complex, and that includes fish. Uh, however dumb it might appear on the outside, you know, there has to be more to it than just being responsive to what happens in its environment. There's a kind of plant which is very, very popular because it has a physical reaction to being touched. It's uh, Mimosa pudica, also known as the sensitive plant. It's a kind of, it's one of its nickname is the shy fern. It is a, it is a fern, and I believe it's a monocot botanically. And if you touch it, its leaves kind of curl up. It will close itself up to touch. And the interesting thing about this is that even these things are capable of learning, meaning that they have some form of what you would call memory. Uh, here's what happens. You drop one of them, it will close up. I mean, the shaking, the impact of the ground, it'll learn, oh, 
I need to close up. Um, oh, sorry, it won't learn it needs to close up. It will close up. If you drop it again, it may close again, but after so many drops, eventually it will stop closing itself. It learns that this particular stimulus doesn't result in any kind of threat, and so it stops wasting its energy uh, closing itself up when it learns that something isn't actually a threat. I guess when a stimulus is consistent enough that it feels the same time after time, it realizes, oh, there's no threat correlated here. I'm just going to save my energy and not move myself. So even this particular kind of plant has a sort of a way of suppressing its own reactions to things. I feel like that's something very behavioral, like B.F. Skinner would have had something to say about that, him and his pigeons. So that's uh, part of what's been going on. Uh, by the way, yesterday I talked a little bit about Maniac, a series on Netflix, and I talked about it stars Jonah Hill and Emma. I couldn't remember if it was Emma Watson or Emma Stone. It's Emma Stone, of course. You can tell I'm betraying my own lack of interest in Harry Potter. I did not know who Emma Watson is, but of course anybody, anybody who's a, yeah, Potter fan, they would know very, very easily. Anyway, if you didn't listen yesterday, I would thoroughly encourage you to check out uh, the series uh, Maniac on Netflix. It's well worth watching, um, whether or not you actually have an interest in psychology or dream analysis. You know, I've always kind of wondered, like I, I, I was briefly involved with a girl uh, at the beginning of this whole coronavirus pandemic, who was a therapist. She had a graduate degree in therapy, an undergraduate degree in psychology and philosophy. And of course, she told me, like, when she goes out to bars and she's talking with people, you know, uh, she used the example of men. She didn't really mention any women. Uh, but as soon as they find out in the course of the conversation that she's a therapist, they clam up. You know, suddenly the, the conversation just dries up. They don't have anything to say. And they're really, really freaked out about being analyzed. Like, oh, this person knows human nature. They know about psychology. They can see into my soul. And I think as I actually understand that reaction, I, I think I've actually had that, that interaction a couple of times when I was in my 20s. I met people who were psychologists or therapists. And suddenly you learn this person I've been talking to for a while. They have a specialty in this. They, they understand human behavior better than most people do. And it sort of freaks you out, you sort of clam up. And you say, well, well, I don't want to say too much now because maybe they'll be able to perceive more than I want them to be able to, more than I'm comfortable revealing to this person. I don't really have this reaction anymore. I mean, partly because I understand that even if you're a therapist or you're good at psychology, you can't work miracles. People are much more complicated than that. Even if you kind of get some insight into what it is they're, they're doing, you don't really know why. And even if a person tells you why, you wouldn't fully understand the ramifications of that why. So there's only so much you can glean from somebody's outward behavior or their mannerisms or their, the way they speak. You can pick up some things. You can probably categorize people in some loose way that's uh, roughly accurate, but 
you can't know somebody's deep, dark secrets if they have them. So there are limitations to what human beings can glean about other human beings. And so it doesn't really make me nervous. Uh, second of all, I mean, if somebody has some insight into who I am, I've kind of become open to that. I've kind of become excited about that. If, if somebody will can study my behavior and tell me something about myself that I don't know, that I really couldn't know because I can't get that kind of perspective on myself, great. I want to hear all about that. I wish I had more people in my life that were capable of casting light on the shadows that are in my brain. I'd like honest, candid uh, factoids thrown my way. Like, oh, you know, here's what I'm seeing. You know, that would be absolutely wonderful. And third, I really don't think I have any secrets that are, you know, that would make me uncomfortable. I'm not even really sure if in my 20s I had secrets that I was cognizant of. There were probably things I didn't really care for about myself. I think I've brought a lot of those to light. And, you know, once once you bring those sorts of things to light, they stop really concerning you. They were always harmless. I wouldn't say I'm an evil person, but, you know, we all have tendencies that we kind of wish weren't in us because we like to think of ourselves as good people and not animals. But in many ways, there are instinctual drives. There are forces in us that make us do things that, you know, we kind of wish weren't in us. I think it's uh, much better if you just accept what those are, because if you deny them, I think they have end up having a lot of control over you. And then you freak out when you meet a therapist who says, they tell you what their trade is and you say, oh, I've got this thing I've repressed and I don't want it uncovered because I'm not comfortable knowing about it. I wonder if that made any sense to anyone who was listening. Don't know. But yeah, it's it's funny the, the reactions people have, uh, especially when people say, you know, I don't want anybody analyzing my behavior. They get uncomfortable because they think a therapist is doing that. A therapist is conscious of how they're doing it. The thing is, everybody does that. You meet another human being, whether they're a therapist or not, they are evaluating you. They're judging you based on what you're saying, doing, you know, how you come across. They are very much uh, judging you. They just probably couldn't articulate what it is they're picking up about you into words. So really, it doesn't even make any sense to, like, give therapists a special special privilege of letting them freak you out because they're because they're analyzing you everyone analyzes everybody else of course regarding the animals i've met a whole lot of animal lovers in my life and the thing is i do like animals but to a degree probably much less so than a lot of people who are diehards you know there's an old axiom not an axiom, what is it, a a story, a parable, I guess, if you will, about a man who was walking down a beach and picking up oysters and clams and throwing them back into the ocean. Are oysters clams, like, oysters are clams that have been served up on a platter to be consumed. Is that right? Anyway, the man is walking along the beach, picking up clams and tossing them back into the sea because he knows they're going to die if they don't get back to their natural habitat. And of course... Somebody comes along and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm saving all these clams. And the other guy looks at him and looks at the beach and looks at all the clams that are there. And he says, well, you can't possibly save all of them. You're barely going to make a dent in the time you spend on this beach today and, and tossing them back into the world. 
you're barely going to save any of them. Most of them are still going to die. And the man looks down at the clam in his hand that he's about to throw back and says, but I can help this one. Now, I think if you understand the point of that story, of that parable or fable, whatever it is classified as, I think that you understand probably a lot of probably a lot of what human beings are meant to understand in order to be happy. Thing is, that is precisely the reason I decided to start taking an interest in my bird and pulling it out and uh, you know keeping him with me, socializing him, giving some experiences besides just sitting in his cage. There are a lot of problems in the world right now. And there's not a whole lot I can do about a lot of them. I am powerless to do most things right now. But I can take responsibility for this bird that I happen to be living with right now. And try to give it something more than just what it would have otherwise. And I think there's a very, very big difference between somebody who adopts one or two cats that are slated to be put down and keeps them and gives them a full life uh, in their home that they, the cats otherwise would not have had. And somebody sort of furiously scrambles around trying to save every single cat that exists that needs help, you know. You know the type, they're the people that like take a picture of a cat and post it on social media to their Facebook friends and say, hey, there's this cat I just found. It's, you know, does anybody want it? I'd love to get it off the street. Not the right way of thinking about things. It's well-meaning, but save one or two cats. Do what you're capable of doing and don't, uh, don't drown yourself trying to save every single animal on the planet. really nothing noble in trying to be a savior, unless, of course, you are a savior. I talked a little bit about the election yesterday, and I don't want to do any of that today at all, so I'm not going to. But I was thinking a little bit this morning about the logos for the two major political parties in the United States. We have elephants. An elephant is the symbol of the Republican Party and a donkey is the symbol of the Democratic Party. Now, something tells me that these were not decided on by a committee somewhere. I don't think there's a a small group of people like the uh, GOP or the DNC got together, formed a coalition and said, let's figure out what the uh, animal should be. I don't know how they came about, how they were formulated, but I think it was definitely not a matter of let's just decide because we're the leaders, if I had to hazard a guess, because if that had happened, if that had been the case, if it really had been a committee, you would have ended up with two very different animals than an elephant and a donkey. I don't know what they would have been. I would have guessed that the Republicans probably would end up with a serpent, sort of the whole don't tread on me mentality, and the Democrats would end up with a... Hard to say. Probably something big and fierce, like a tiger, something that would be compensating. You know, it would not be a donkey, which is, you know, most famously in Shakespeare been associated with the the ass, sort of something that's dumb and slow and insipid 
And so I was wondering why an elephant and why a donkey? I really have no idea. I could really only speculate about this. I would say before I answer the question, I would encourage you at home to take a minute to think about it. Why exactly is an elephant and a donkey? Elephant kind of makes sense. I mean, mythologically, elephants are generally associated with wisdom. And of course, that makes sense. They're the largest land mammals. They're very, very slow. They're very sturdy, solid. They're glacial in their pace. You know, they don't move much. And as far as, as far as like, if you're a Republican, you're a conservative, you tend to favor traditionalism. You don't want to bring about dynamic change in the world, you know, without considering the implications of that. Elephant makes sense, mythologically. It seems like the motif is, is appropriate. And uh, elephants mean something in, in Hindu mythology, but I don't remember what the significance is there. I think they mean something in Buddhism as well, but I don't remember what. I feel like there's there's an old story that said that an elephant gave birth to the Buddha, but I don't see how that would factor into modern day politics. The donkey, on the other hand, donkeys are one of the oldest stories we have in its in its in entirety. You know, a story that has survived completely is the golden ass, which is about a person who. It's about a guy who seeks to be turned into another animal, something powerful, and he ends up, because of a mistake, getting turned into a donkey. And so he spends a significant portion of his years as a donkey, experiencing the world as a donkey. And he ends up learning a lot about human nature. You know, he ends up becoming a he ends up becoming enslaved as a donkey by a farmer, and he learns about the true character of the farmer and his wife. It's not a story that I've read, but Mythologically, donkeys are, there's a lot to donkeys. Uh, the one thing that I know of myself is that uh, a donkey is associated with the Messiah. The Christian mythology adapted it from the Jewish mythology, the, in Zechariah. I think it was Zechariah. Uh, the Messiah is prophesied to arrive on a donkey, of all things. That's quite, quite a different uh, association than Shakespeare's uh, ass, sort of donkeys are slow and stupid. But donkey's gonna bring in the Messiah. I feel like that's quite a different, quite a different uh, association to draw. Uh, but anyway, the, the Messiah is meant to ride in on a donkey. And of course that does happen in the gospels. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last time to be crucified, he is riding on a donkey. And of course, I do wonder about this association, um, namely that of the perspective of how much government there should be. Democrats in general, not across the board, you know, not to overgeneralize unfairly, but usually they are associated with the desire for more government. And most of them are not religious. Now, there's an old idea that I've put forward in the past, which says that It's an idea that comes from a book by Will Durant, Will and Ariel Durant, who were historians of the 20th century, uh, from their Lessons of History, in which they say that one of the things we can learn from history is that in a society, as religion decreases, as people throw off their cultural mythologies of spiritualism and that sort of thing, communism increases. So where people no longer have a god, they project a god onto the state and they expect the state 
to save them. And I wonder if there's something to that here. I wonder if it's if it could be that Democrats choose a donkey because they are looking for a savior. Most of them are not religious, not really going for the whole Jesus thing. So they're thinking, yeah, let's associate a donkey with the government because that's where we expect uh, our well-being to come from. We want somebody to bail us out, so to speak. I might be reading into too much there, but I do wonder what, you know, what inborn mechanisms there are inside of human beings with relation to animals that, you know, create these kinds of associations, you know. And I think it's it's a it's kind of an interesting question to ask for, like, say, the, the, the elephant and the donkey of the political parties. Now, I mean, there's an old Tootsie Pop commercial in which a boy approaches an owl and says, Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? And the owl says, let's find out. And he takes one lick, two licks, and then he just bites the thing and eats the whole lollipop in his third bite and hands the kid back to, hands the kid back his uh, empty lollipop stick. Says, there you go. I just answered the question for you and I stole your lollipop for you. And the kid looks really sad and forlorn. Says, there you go. Your answer is three. Uh, now, why is it an owl instead of anything else? No idea. I don't think that's really... I don't think there was a whole lot of thought put into that. I think somebody just picked an owl and actually there was more to that commercial. If any of you remember what commercial I'm talking about, originally he approached a a tortoise and he said, hey, Mr. Tortoise, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? And the tortoise says, I'm too old to answer this kind of question. I don't know. Leave me alone. He pulls his head back into his shell, something like that. And then he ends up with the owl, probably the whole wise owl thing, the whole the fact that we associate them with wisdom. I wonder why owls are associated with wisdom. Owls are brutal critters. Like when they I think they're they're birds of prey. I heard recently about a there's a somebody who found like hawk heads in their backyard. I forget was this Joe Rogan? He was saying that he found some hawk heads in his backyard. And he was like, what the hell is pulling off hawk's heads? And he, he looked in. Apparently, there's a kind of owl that does this. Owls are definitely, they're not elegant creatures. They're just, they're just predators, you know. I don't know how exactly they got tied up with wisdom. It's an interesting question. I kind of wonder exactly how the tortoise... Okay, I guess I'm getting back to the Tootsie Roll commercial. Yeah, why exactly was the tortoise too old and didn't know? Maybe there is something to that. Maybe that is worth exploring. I'm not going to explore that here. There's an old Stephen King novel called It, which I've talked about a little bit. Um, the more recent adaptations, the two movies it was adapted into were things I was actually quite fond of. wouldn't say that they were good movies. Matter of fact, they, the first one was decent. Second one, not at all. But I loved both of them. I thought they were absolutely terrific and I enjoyed them for what they are. But that is not a recommendation. Uh, you know, retweets are not endorsements, so to speak. But the movie didn't cover the original mythology of the animal. Not the animal, the monster in the story. Uh, the movie briefly touches upon in the second one where you see a comet coming into space and it says this is the monster arriving on Earth. 
that's about as far as it goes into the character's uh, derivation, like where it exactly comes from. In the book, it's there's more mythology to it. And it's been a while since I read this far into the book, but there was essentially a, a tortoise and a giant spider at the beginning of the universe. And the tortoise gets a stomach ache after eating something bad and pukes. And this ends up creating the universe. And the spider, who is the turtle's nemesis, uh, goes down to live in the universe and ends up on planet Earth and it starts preying on flesh down there. And the spider is the clown. It's a shapeshifter and it takes the form of a clown in order to lure children in. Uh, tor tortoises actually have a, tortoises are another animal that have a lot of associations in mythology, particularly around creation stories. So I, I wonder if that was an accident uh, or if that's actually something Stephen King intended since tortoises are, I'm trying to remember which mythology, I think the creation myth of the Iroquois, uh, one of their tribes, their creation story involves a tortoise uh, to call one out specifically. I wonder if it's a coincidence that Stephen King decided to make uh, his the creator of the universe in his own uh, stories, mythology, a, a turtle. Don't know. Maybe he's touched upon it somewhere. I remember seeing an interview with Stephen King on Craig Ferguson back on the Late Late Show when it was still on. And, uh, you know, Craig Ferguson asked him. Uh, I was delighted to hear him ask this question. Uh, do you think there's something to Jungian psychology? Do you think there are inborn things in us that trigger reactions, behaviors, kind of constellate certain behaviors, reactions from us, feelings? And Stephen King said, yeah, I think so. Because if you look at every culture, we have something like a clown. You know, there's there's always a clown in every culture. It's like something that's meant to be entertaining, but it instills unease in a lot of people it's just it's meant to be amusing but it's kind of creepy at the same time like that's just something you find worldwide interesting point i actually haven't followed up on that and to figure out if that's actually true i'm not sure i, I care that much but that's that's curious to me i don't know why a clown exists a lot of people hate clowns most adults are, are kind of freaked out by clowns. A lot of kids are freaked out by clowns. Uh, and yet it's something that is very prevalent in culture. I do wonder what came before clowns. Like, I think the first person to actually put on white makeup on their face and, you know, do a pattern on their face for the purposes of entertainment, uh, or the carnival or a circus was like 200 years ago. So I guess the archetype of the clown what was it before there were clowns in the Western world? Well, what, what exactly was the thing that was both supposed to be entertaining, but was also deeply unsettling at the same time? And why exactly are people afraid of clowns? What is it about them that freaks people out? This is probably not worth diving into. It's kind of like the one best way to kill a joke is to tear it apart, analyze it, and try and get at it, its meaning. 
I feel like the same thing could be said for clowns. Once you understand it, once you understand why they're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be afraid of them, why they cause a fear reaction in humans, then you would stop being afraid of them. And I don't want to do that for anyone. I know people love being afraid, so I'd rather not dissect that one. Anyway, I am, I am actually out at a shopping plaza, a couple, a couple miles from where my parents uh, are, where they, where they live and where I'm currently crashing for the duration of this pandemic. There's a whole lot of things. I'm looking at all these nice little shops with their Christmas lights out. Dusk is just starting to fall. It's looking very nice. I really wish I could go take a stroll and, you know, look in some of these shops and basically just maybe you can't really smile at people because you have to wear masks now, but, you know, make smiley eyes at people, you know, kind of exchange some friendly glances with some people, some human interaction. I'm, of course, not going to do that right now. Um, the numbers out there are very, very bad. The CDC has been saying, you know, there there are not hot spots in the country anymore. As far as where the virus is breaking out, we're way beyond that. It is just everywhere, and it's overwhelming medical establishments everywhere. So when I first got to Michigan and when I was in San Francisco uh, after about May, I sort of made calculated risks. I would venture out of my house and go into stores just to get some sense of normalcy in my in my head, in my life experience. Uh, I am no longer doing that. Right now I am under self-imposed lockdown, non-negotiable, and I am not going to take any kind of risk that involves me going into stores. I kind of would like to do more to help. I did think about that when I was in San Francisco a little bit. I didn't end up doing it because it wasn't clear to me where I could go. It seemed like whenever I tried to volunteer anywhere uh, around the Bay Area, everyone basically had enough help. You know, there were wait lists of four weeks long. You know, if you want to volunteer, you sign up, sign up for a shift in a month and then you could head out. Uh, you know, and I was like, well, people, there's enough volunteers doing enough stuff. I think it's not a matter of a lack of volunteers. It's a lack of people organizing resources that need volunteers to help allocate them. I think that was the real problem. And hence, I never really bothered to to volunteer. I was like, probably the, the smartest thing I can do, the best thing I can do is just hang back and not venture out unnecessarily, you know, and be very, very careful if you do. But don't tempt the fates is ultimately what I thought the best thing to do was. But I mean, now I'm living, I'm living in a place where I'm sure more volunteers could be used. I, I, I haven't looked into it around here, but it's not worth the risk just because I'm living with two elderly people who happen to be my parents who are members of the at-risk population. So it isn't worth the risk for that reason. And for that reason, I'm also considering like actually doing, what are the things where you can actually have people go out and buy groceries for you? Like not DoorDash, that's for restaurants. I've never used any of these services, but I have been going out and buying things at stores. Like if I want to go out and buy food or something, you know, when I was in San Francisco, I of course did that. I never once asked somebody to deliver their groceries for me. That feels very classist to me, you know, like I'm not going to take the risk. I want you to take the risk for me and I'll pay you to do that. Uh, it feels very undemocratic to me, but perhaps it would be smart if I'm really feeling, you know, threatened by the disease, but 
uh, you know, unless I, until I'm like over 65 and I'm actually at risk, I don't see the merit in offloading that responsibility to somebody else. But I've, I've given some thought to like doing that now, the way the virus is just everywhere and it's affecting everyone. I don't want to put my parents at risk. And so for that reason, I'm thinking about having, if I want to order food uh, from a grocery store, having, having somebody do it for me. Uh, I think that's kind of unfair, but I think it's, um, it's a matter of, you know, keeping, keeping my parents safe. It's, it's not just about me and it's uh classist or not. It seems like a necessary risk. I'm going to have to like, pay somebody else to take for me. Although I would have to say that they're probably not getting paid nearly enough to go out and deliver groceries in this particular climate. Don't know. Probably debatable. Maybe I'm too much of a nice guy. Uh, maybe I should just do what needs to be done. But I try and be mindful of that sort of thing. Um, the impact I'm having on the people who are doing things to serve me. And I'd rather not make them serve me unnecessarily. I have thought about this. I really wish Amazon would roll this out as a feature. Like I have, I'm a, of course a prime member. Like I think almost everybody is, but I have to be very, very careful about when I order things, because if I order something like say on a Thursday and it shows up, let's say the following Monday or Tuesday, if you track the order, you can see that it arrives at carrier facilities, say two in the morning, it arrives somewhere in the middle of the country, you know, at a carrier facility on Friday night. And then early Saturday morning, like at 4 a.m., you see it arriving at a carrier facility that's closer to where you are. And just it seems like there's people working these night shifts, scanning these boxes so that it can get to you. Uh, what I want is the equivalent of Prime. And maybe things don't get to you in two days, but your package will only be handled during normal working hours and maybe not nine to five. Maybe it's, you know. 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. during the day, but not over weekends. Things wouldn't get boxed up if you order them over the weekend until the following Monday morning. And people who are couriers, they wouldn't have to deliver on Sundays. I'd be okay with it not delivering on Saturdays. Of course, this is a logistical problem. There's no way you could set up two separate flows. Like there's prime members that want this stuff as fast as possible. Doesn't matter when the workers are working. And another set of packages that are, you know, attempting to give, you know, uh, the workers who are delivering the boxes some boundaries uh, between their professional and personal lives. But I don't, I feel kind of bad about that when I order a book and it's like, yeah, it was, you know, a bunch of carrier facilities were checking it in, in their systems in the middle of the night. Who the hell's working in the middle of the night? I don't need anything that badly, that quickly, you know, that it has to happen in the middle of the night over a weekend. Anyway, yeah, maybe I'm being too bleeding hard about all this, but I mean, it's something I would definitely sign up for. Amazon, if you're listening, that's my request. See if you can make it happen. Regards my current location, I'm currently sitting outside of a Starbucks in the shopping plaza. And that's uh, that's better than the grocery store because there's a whole lot more foot traffic in and out with much more frequency. So in terms of just sitting somewhere, people watching, feeling close to humanity while I'm 
socially isolated for pandemic reasons. This is actually much nicer. People are definitely getting into the festive thing. You know, there's somebody just drove by with a tree tied to the top of their car. Starbucks is kind of a habit I fell out of. And when I was in Santa Barbara, I remember going to Starbucks on a fairly regular basis and just sitting there reading. It was definitely a big part of my daily routine. It was something I enjoyed. I remember drinking like Starbucks coffee. Not something I've done for a very long time. I haven't gone into a Starbucks and just sat there and, and loitered, you know, enjoyed the ambiance for recreational purposes, I think since I left Southern California about five years ago. Yeah, it's so weird. It feels so passe. Like it, it, I don't understand why people even still do it. It's kind of like there was all these things that used to be part of my life that are somewhat mainstream. I used to like go to Target and just wander around aimlessly, which I guess I still do on occasion. Uh, start, you know, something like Starbucks. What else? Social media, for example, like Facebook used to be a very active part of my my whole experience. There's all these things that I've just have fallen by the wayside. They're no longer a part of my life. And it, it kind of feels to me because I've moved on, I feel like everybody else should have moved on. And it's, it's confusing to me that anybody still does these things. Like, well, I don't. Why does anybody else? It doesn't make any sense. But of course, the world does not move that fast. Things don't change that quickly. So Starbucks is probably here to stay. I do wonder what will kill Starbucks. You know, it's there's a lot of things that have been like so Target came along and pretty much supplanted a lot of retailers that existed before it. So something like Kmart, for example, um, I think a lot of their market share ended up going over to Target uh, over the course of many years. And I don't know exactly how Target managed to challenge them. I don't know how Kmart lost its foothold. And I, I don't know how, for example, Starbucks has managed to reign supreme for all of these years without really anybody challenging them. There have always been like secondary coffee shops. In the Detroit area, there's a Caribou Coffee. And I remember famously 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 15, when I was still living here, the argument was, is, is Starbucks better or is Caribou Coffee better? I think Caribou Coffee has since fallen by the wayside. I don't think they exist anymore. I think they've gone into bankruptcy and I, I haven't seen one in many, many years. Perhaps they've been renamed and they're no longer operating under that particular name, but I, I don't know. There used to be one right across the street from where I'm at now, but that's become a Coney Island. Uh, Coney Island, I guess, being one of those Detroit-only things. I'm not sure I've ever seen a Coney Island outside of Detroit. And I don't know... I don't know exactly who owns a Coney Island. I, I don't know if that's a franchise you can buy or if it's just there's a bunch of independent ones that all call themselves the same thing. It's like Santa Claus says in that film, Elf, you know, if you go to New York City, there's 20 original Ray's pizzas and they all claim to be the original, but the real one is on whatever, 22nd Street. Is that just what's going on in the Detroit area? There's a whole bunch of Coney Islands and they don't, they don't all claim to be the original, but they're all like a Coney Island, but they're all independent. They just all happen to use the same name. What is going on there business-wise, legally? I don't quite know. There are actually two Coney Islands in Detroit, and they're right next door to each other. 
uh, I forget what they are. They're somewhere, somewhere downtown Detroit, but these are like the oldest Coney Islands and they both serve Coney dogs and they both claim to have the best one. And people sort of have opinions. Locals, Detroit locals will say, uh, this one is better or that one is better. And, you know, ultimately it's probably the same thing. It's kind of a commodity dish. I don't see how one can be that much better than the other, but it's, you know, one of those local things that it's local folklore around food. I kind of wish under under better circumstances I would be going down there and, and trying both of them in one day. Not right now, though. As I said, of course, I am not going anywhere. The trees that I'm looking at, they're not uh, Christmas trees. They're deciduous. But the Christmas trees that I'm looking at along, they're lining the street where I'm sitting are actually purple and green. I think they're alternating or they're basically purple and green light strung next to each other so that that's the two colors it's actually a very good combination i wouldn't have expected those to look good together if you put it down on paper and said here's what we're going to do i would have thought that was silly but it's a nice it's a nice combination christmas lights are something i really enjoy it's kind of like denali a festival of lights i like that idea and i do wish that there were i do wish that there was something akin to christmas all year round like not not covering our trees in lights all the time. That probably would make it less special. But I think the use of, let's say decorative lighting, isn't employed nearly enough. In terms of interior design, there are three types of lighting. There's primary lighting, which is the stuff you have in the ceilings and probably control with light switches. There are like floor lamps, which is called secondary lighting, I believe, or ambient lighting. And then there are little lamps you might use for particular things. Like, you know, you have a lamp on a desk for building models, for example, that you can focus in on. That's called task lighting. I don't know what the corresponding levels of lighting are outside. I imagine there's something similar, but decorative lighting, uh, whether indoor or outdoor is not something that's utilized nearly enough. I briefly got into was it Huga? The whole Danish, uh, yeah, the whole Danish uh, idea of designing inner spaces, you know, of carefully designing lighting. I think it's it's Huga, but essentially it's it's a matter of doing, creating internal. How would I define it? I'm kind of stumbling here for words. When I have to like just come up with a definition for something off the cuff, I can never quite do it. I fumble with my words. I'm a better writer than I am speaker. That's true in every language. Huga is kind of the, the idea that your mood can be affected by tiny tweaks in the environment. And it's very, very important you set up the environment uh, where you spend time, let's say family and friends, to have the right effect on you. For example, like, Low lighting, using candles, and real candles, not just those fake LED ones that look like they flicker. Using real candles and having a lot of wood around and eating certain kinds of food is encouraged. It's essentially a kind of lifestyle. It's a lifestyle and a sort of inner, indoors, interior design aesthetic. I guess you could say that's meant to have a good 
a good, meant to have a beneficial impact on your well-being is the way I'll put it. I kind of got into this a couple of years ago, which was, of course, several years after it was a fad for our people. And I, this is what actually what prompted me to go around looking for scented candles a couple of Christmases ago. Uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I actually enjoy like scented candles. Like it kind of dawned on me that when I'm somewhere and there's a scented candle that I can light and I light it and it has a pleasant aroma. I was like, I really enjoy that, but I've really never stood up and said, I want to go out and find a candle for myself. I've never been proactive. You know, there's a lot of things that I enjoy when they happen to be there. And really it's never crossed my mind to actually purposefully introduce them into my own life uh, of my own volition. I try to pay attention to those things now and candles were one thing that happened. It came up uh, a couple of years ago. So I started going around looking for scented candles, but Hugo, the idea of trying to create an atmosphere that is psychologically beneficial. That was the original impetus. And that kind of got me thinking about interior design too. You know, like I, I've never really given a whole lot of thought to where I live or how it looks. Like it's always been very, very functional. Okay, I need a couch. What couch is easily available that will not be difficult to get into my place or expensive? I'd like it to be comfortable, but you know, it doesn't have to be a wonderful couch. Where I was living at the time was the one bedroom in San Francisco that I just moved out of three months ago. I remember thinking like, there's not a whole lot of stuff on the walls. Like I basically have a bed. I have like some furniture, which I just acquired, you know, from somebody who happened to be getting rid of it. It was more of, I furnished based on convenience and ease and thrift than I did any kind of aesthetic. And it worked, but I kind of thought to myself, you know, someday I would like to end up somewhere where I have some control over what the atmosphere is. I'd like to do some kind of interior design. I'd like to say, here's an aesthetic I like, you know, and this is what I want to basically make my life into. I don't know when I get there, but I do, I do pay attention to those sorts of things now. I guess, I guess it was Fight Club that kind of put the instinct in me, like maybe that's a waste of time. You shouldn't bother doing that, you know. Certainly that's something I picked up from my upbringing, you know. You're a man. Man, don't, men don't worry about feelings. Just do what has to be done, you know. Strictly functional, strictly operational. It doesn't matter how something makes you feel because, you know, it's, it's all the same in the end. It matters. There, there's, there's a house I could live in that would have a certain layout. It could have certain colors on the walls and it could have a certain sort of feel to it that would make me uneasy and anxious. Basically not content. And there is, there is separate aesthetics, separate ideas, separate colors, lighting and such that I could use that would make me feel much more comfortable and much more happy about where it is that I live. That's, not a negligible thing. And I think it's probably, eh, I'd be, I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss it is what I would encourage you to do. Like, I think it matters to me. I don't know if it matters to you, but I think that you probably shouldn't say that it doesn't matter. You shouldn't dismiss it outright. I, I wouldn't say you should accept that it matters and, you know, invest a lot of time and money into it for yourself until you figure it out. But I do know that it matters for me. I don't just say like if I ever get the chance to build my own house, 
And, you know, a lot of the great men that I respect from the past, uh, in particular, like Thomas Jefferson, they dabbled in architecture. Like they designed buildings. They designed like houses for themselves to live in. I find that absolutely fascinating. I know nothing about architecture, but I do like the idea. And I'm not sure I have the attention span to focus on something like architecture long enough to, you know, I'm not sure I ever want to actually build a house for myself, but one of my ex's parents, they had the opportunity to do so. They live out kind of in a rural area. They live on a farm, basically, and they they decided they're going to tear down their house and rebuild it about 10, 12 years ago. And they rebuilt the house themselves. I don't think they designed it themselves. I think they had some input on the design. I think they figured out they made some design decisions about the house for sure, but I don't know to what extent they were involved in the overall layout. I forget how much input they put in, but the way that they designed the house, like what it ended up being was absolutely lovely. I think that's the situation I hope to end up in someday as well. The motif is kind of like log cabin. The inside is wood, uh, not like planks of wood, like logs, but it, it's, it's definitely a wood aesthetic. There's a stone fireplace, uh, kind of a central hearth. Uh, it's very open. The first floor is, uh, yeah, just kind of one big room with a couple of bedrooms in it. Um, yeah, the kitchen is very accessible. There's a lot of counter space. Matter of fact, that's the thing I, I would say I don't like is that there's not enough counter space. Um, I imagine one day if I were to build a house, I would want one of those kitchens that is very long, has a lot of counter space, and there aren't really cupboards. Like everything that you use to cook with is just so picturesque and ma matches itself so well that it's all just on a shelf or hanging from the shelf, like on hooks, right out in the open. Uh, if you if you can picture what I'm talking about, that's exactly the kitchen I want. I don't want. I just want stuff out. I want to be picturesque enough that I don't mind leaving it out, and it's safe. Um, I don't know what style of kitchen that's called, actually. Might be something to look into. And, you know, always having some greenery around. And if possible, having greenery that has lights on it. Yeah, the one thing that I think was crazy about them is that they had very, very high ceilings. So, I mean, they did have a second floor. But most of the floor space in the house, the second floor wasn't there. It was just a really, really tall first floor, like maybe 20, 30 feet. The ceilings were high. And so you could look down from the second floor onto the first floor. And every single year, they would get a Christmas tree that was ridiculously tall. Like um, the wife was very, very enthusiastic about Christmas. And she loved getting a Christmas tree. And so when they had the space to do this, she would get a 20-foot-tall Christmas tree every year. It was just this massive thing. I don't know how they even got it into the house. I guess tied up, I suppose. But the, de the decisions they made around that house, and not least of all because out back they had an old barn that had been converted into an art studio that had a little fireplace in it, uh, that whole setup, being kind of out in the countryside, not in view of anyone else. You have a house that is very wood feel and you have a studio out back where you can go do art and there's a wood burning stove and that whole situation that they had, 
that is what I would hope to find and step into if I had my druthers, if I could just pick anything. So yeah, this is where I want to end up. That would be it. Of course, I don't know where I'd want to end up in that. It certainly wouldn't be in rural Michigan anywhere. Uh, don't think it would be in the Bay Area in California. Don't know. To the age now where I have to start thinking about where it is I want to put down roots. But you know what? I can punt on that question for another several months because we are a ways away from the end of this pandemic. So... You know, there was something somebody said on Twitter shortly after the coronavirus hit and we all went into lockdown shelter in place. They said something akin to who else out there felt that their life was just suddenly on course right before the coronavirus hit. And I remember laughing at that and thinking, yeah, that's totally me. Because it sort of felt that way. I don't think that's actually true. I think what kind of realized is I had an epiphany as to what needed to happen in my life and what action I needed to take in order to move forward with things, eh, forward with things, slurring for some reason. And the whole coronavirus thing, not being able to venture out of your house, being on lockdown sort of precluded that from actually taking place. Suddenly I had the gumption, the confidence, the interest in going out and doing what I think needs to be done for myself. And all of a sudden I was like, prevented from doing it. There was all of a sudden this blocker. I read something recently that the theory, I think this is, I think this came from Carl Jung, but he said that basically consciousness early on develops in the human being from collisions and conflicts with reality. So the child is born, has no awareness of himself versus the outside world, has no real sense of identity, but sort of picks it up by going out and like interacting with this outside world. Like he realizes that by poking this or that thing, suddenly this will be the response. Reaching and grabbing this thing and putting it in his mouth, he knows this will be the response. This series of interactions that may cause pain or pleasure, he kind of learns to develop a sense of self from these interactions. I think I sort of came to the conclusion earlier this year, and this is what led me to quit my job, was the sense that I don't think I'm fully formed as an adult human being which is probably common. I wouldn't say that's just me. I wouldn't say it's unusual for somebody in, well, as I approach middle age, I wouldn't say it's unusual for somebody who's about my age to think, you know, maybe there's something unrealized in myself, some unrealized potential, something that I don't know. And that there's a desire to discover that. I think I kind of realized I need to be like an infant. I don't quite know what I want. I don't quite know where I'm going. I don't quite know what the correct path is for me, what will make me happy. But sitting around and intellectualizing about what that could be, about, you know, speculating. It could be this or it could be that. Or maybe I'm this kind of person. Like, I was like, thinking is not going to get me to the answer. What I need to do is go out and do a bunch of stupid things. Maybe not all stupid, but I need to basically go out and have experiences. I need to be the infant that is clamoring for something and putting it in my mouth without fully knowing what he is doing. And I was like, I think a stronger sense of self, like a higher state of consciousness will result from me doing that. And that is precisely why I left my job and why I set out to suddenly get involved in the San Francisco community. I wanted to volunteer. I wanted to meet people. I wanted to do lots of things. I've talked about all this before, but I think ultimately that was the intent, even though I couldn't have articulated that way 
back when I was doing it. I, I needed to stumble. I think I still need to stumble. I think that is ultimately the plan. I'm not sure I go right back to the Bay Area. I've talked about possibly going down to New Orleans. You know, once the pandemic is, is over with and I can go back to the Bay Area, I may just take the long way back there and stop for a few months at a couple places along the way that I think might be of interest to me and try and have some crazy experiences there. Who knows? I don't know what comes of it, but I think the last thing I should do is just sort of stiffly, conservatively, strictly to sort of go right back to where I was, set up shop roughly where I was before, and just have the same life. I think I need to I think I need to do some traveling once we can travel again. And I need to sort of cavalierly, without a whole lot of thought, propel myself into things that I think I might enjoy. This is, I think, the plan. I think this is what needs to happen in order for me to move forward. But who knows? This could prove to be just bad advice. So, yeah, I, I have my car here, car which is registered in California, which I brought back to Detroit about three months ago. And I'm sure there's some law that says if you bring a motor vehicle into the state and operate it, you know, you have to register it with the state of Michigan within so many weeks. If I get a grace period, I don't know how long it is. I kind of wonder what would happen if I got pulled over right now or possibly three or four months from now. And it's kind of like, well, this is a car that's registered in California. You have been here for six months. Of course, I could lie. I wouldn't have to tell them how, how long I've been here. But eventually, I wonder if it may ever come up, if it'll come into conflict. And it'll be like, well, you, you've been here for longer than 10 days, so you're, you're past the grace period. You have to register the car. And it's like, look, there's a pandemic going on, coronavirus. Like, I'd rather not go into the DMV and deal with this whole thing because I'm not staying. I'm really just here as like on a long-term visit. Like, what are the, what are the rules about that? I'm not establishing residency. I don't know. I don't know if it'd be a problem. It makes me think of that, that one scene in, there's a, there's a film called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, which is, uh, you know, basically the world is coming to an end. There's an asteroid headed for Earth. Everything's going to be wiped out in two weeks. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Everybody on Earth kind of knows this. And uh, it starts off with Steve Carell kind of getting this information. They know everything's hopeless. And his wife runs away. And he, you know, just sort of navigates the world as things are crumbling. And it's not what you would think. Like, there's, it's not like people are going nuts and killing each other. There's a bit of anarchy. Of course, people are not taking their jobs all that seriously anymore. It's... It's a nice little film. I'd recommend it. But there's a scene in there in which he and uh, the, the girl he ends up um, hooking up with at some point, that, uh, Kira Knightley, uh, they're driving in a car that they acquired from somebody who ended up dead. And a cop pulls them over and says, hey, you know, I need your license and registration. And, uh, you know, she says, uh, I don't have any of those things. The world is ending in 10 days. Could you possibly just let it slide and let us go? The cop just says no, and he ends up dragging them into jail. 
it's like that, that kind of st- like I feel like I'm there's a chance I might run into that cop. It's like, well, just despite the fact that there's a pandemic going on and that right. registering your car here would be an unnecessary risk, you should have done it. Here's a ticket. I'm not really all that worried about it, but I'm kind of curious. It's one of those things like what if that happened? What exactly is going to be the outcome? Should I should I worry? Should I care? Personally, I don't, but I do wonder. So finding Christmas music is one of those things that I find particularly challenging. The thing is, I do like Christmas music that is fairly traditional. I don't like Christmas music that goes too off the wall crazy and tries to rearrange itself and do something novel and make itself sound interesting. I do like the creative melodies, not creative melodies. I do like creative arrangements. How would I put it? Creative arrangements probably are not appealing to me. I do like the the classical sound of a Christmas carol, but at the same time, the classical sound has the potential to just be boring and bland and not interesting at all. So it's kind of like a matter of striking the right balance, you know, just the right amount of complexity to be interesting and sound fairly traditional, like be listenable, but not so off the wall crazy that it's, it sounds like it's a different song. Like it's a new song. So I'm always looking to strike the right balance. I find that there's albums by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir that I like. I like the fact that it's symphonic, that it's typically not doesn't incorporate rock guitar, like something like, uh, what is the famous one? Mannheim Steamroller. That's a little bit too rocky for me. You know, I like the more traditional. There's, there's just a big voluminous choir and a symphony backing them. I don't need rock and drums. You know, that's, doesn't quite appeal to me, but the Mormon Tabernacle Choir seems to strike a nice balance. It's, it's, large and symphonic, so the sound is deep, and they tend to maintain a sort of traditionalism with the melodies. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. You know, if you're looking for a... If you're looking for a tabernacle choir, I definitely recommend the Mormon one. I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. The parking lot I'm sitting in is in a shopping plaza, and there's a gazebo that's just out of my line of sight. Like the thing is, when I come to like a public place like this and I want to sit and people watch, I don't, I don't park somewhere where I can just stare at people while they're sitting on benches, like in a park somewhere. I don't have, I have no interest in doing that. I, I feel like that would be creepy. You know, you go to a playground and sit there and just stare at the playground. Uh, no, no, I would do. I just kind of sit in the parking lot and I watch people come to and from their cars. Like as long as they're in motion, they're coming or departing. You know, that's. That feels a little less creepy to me, you know. I already feel weird enough, like just being in a car watching people come and go, and that's that's how I'm getting human interaction now. It feels very strange, but the cars have sort of cleared now, and I actually have a line of sight on this gazebo, a sort of communal area, and it looks like something is going on. I'm trying to figure out if is there a Santa Claus, like people are lining up and going in and then coming out. I can't figure out exactly what what's going on. God, there, you know, there's just, this is probably the best point in my life for this to have happened. Like, I'm an adult. I'm independent. I'm on my own. I'm relatively unfettered. I can move around very comfortably. Like, I was able to just say, like, look, I'm going to go 
back and be with my parents, you know, spend some time with them, get some FaceTime with them, you know, for, you know, things get too much worse. I had, I have the freedom to do that, you know, and it's actually very comfortable being just a single lone individual in a circumstance like this, because you can move around, you can take precautions um, of your own volition. You know, if you're walking down the street in general, if you're walking down the street and you need to like get out of people's way because you want to maintain social distancing, it's easy to do that as an individual. You know, you're much more agile as a lone person. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a parent like you're married for example so you have a wife and then you have a couple of kids that you're taking care of and you're somehow trying to keep this whole sideshow together amidst all of this you're all like locked up in a house somewhere and uh, you're limited in to, to what extent you can venture out into the reality and experience the world like the whole idea of going to see santa claus you know if you're a kid I'm an adult, I understand, you know, but if you're, if you're a kid, you know, there are traditions, you know, you do this or that at Christmas time, you go see Santa, you go out and do shopping, you know, you're going to get toys and all that, all of that's on hold right now. At least I, it, it really ought to be on hold probably more than it really is. It'd be strange to be experiencing this as a, somebody who's not single. I'm really, I'm really glad it's happening at this point in my life. I have 10 years from now, if I'm more settled down somewhere, I, I could see it being more inconvenient. Or hell, I was engaged to be married last year and I broke that off. I mean, if, if I had followed through on that, I never even thought about that. We were, we were supposed to get married of April or May of this year was the plan. If I had not broken that off, It's really a matter of speculation as to where we would be, her and I, at this point. I don't know what we would have done. I don't know if we'd still be living in the same place. I don't know if we'd be going absolutely stir-crazy. And Last time I, I spoke with her, she was probably like, it's probably best that it didn't work out because, you know, now you and I would be under lockdown in a one-bedroom in San Francisco, like, holed up together, as if that would have been too much closeness with somebody that you were planning on marrying. I, I didn't really want to ask the question, but I was like, what are you implying by that? That really, you kind of didn't want to marry me either? Is that what you've ultimately come to? Or is this just a matter of, of a way of saving face? Eh, it's not, not worth speculating on. But even if that had happened, if I, if I were engaged and wedding plans had gotten canceled, and I was like now trying to like navigate this whole situation with another person, Everything would be so much harder. I mean, that's that's definitely true of, of most things in life anyway. But I feel like it would be much more stressful in this particular set of circumstances. Jesus. What is going on here? But there's a lot of people out right now. I mean, to be honest, I kind of expected to come out to these shopping centers like there's nothing essential. Like I'm sitting yesterday, I was sitting outside of a grocery store and people were kind of coming in, you know, in, in a trickle in either direction. And people have to go out and buy food. I'm sitting outside of a, a mall where there is nothing but non-essentials here. Like a Starbucks coffee. You can get coffee and make it at home. I don't think anybody here is lacking the means to do that themselves. 
There is a bunch of fancy restaurants. There is a Barnes and Noble. There is a bunch of clothing stores. There's like a paper source or a papyrus, whatever it is. None of this stuff. People do not need to be out doing any of this stuff. I'm really surprised people are taking the risks. It's, it's really not, it's not worth it. Go home, people. But of course, you know, you, you have to live. Some people are more comfortable with risk than on others. Even amongst the people that, like there, I know there's a gradation. It's very, very obvious that some people give a shit more than others. Like some people just don't worry about masking up while others do. But even amongst the people who really seem to care and who are worried about getting a disease, like worried about catching coronavirus and having damage done to their system or possibly dying, there are some people who are really, really freaked out and are paralyzed and can't even leave their houses. You know, they're not even comfortable, like, unpacking the food that gets shipped to their door, you know, without letting it stay, stay, you know, in isolation for a week or so. and other people who, who know enough to be concerned, who wear masks, but are, you know, generally more lackadaisical. Like there's a gradation even amongst the people who know that they should give a shit. I think I had a point there, but I don't quite know what it was. I don't know if there always has to be a point. I always feel like there should be some sort of lesson I'm building towards. Like when I start talking here, like I should have something to say, you know, I shouldn't just start rambling. Aimlessly. As much as I self-deprecate and say that I'm rambling, usually I'm not. Usually when I start talking about something, I do have a point. And it is a point that I'm hopeful somebody out there may take an interest in. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But I do try to make this slightly more than just me. It's more than just stream of consciousness. I, I do kind of put things together in my head and sort of come into this with something of a plan. It's not that structured. I'm not reading off of a piece of paper, but it's not quite, not quite just what flows out of my head most of the time. Okay, so again, getting back to politics in brief, and I really, like I said, I do not want to talk about the election. I think I've harped on that enough in the last couple of episodes of this There's an interesting story that came up yesterday. So my dad has a bunch of old friends that he's been reaching out to and getting in touch with, like old high school buddies, old army buddies, old people that were at his first, I was going to say his first job. It's first his only job. I mean, he taught in public education. So he taught in the same place for 30 years and retired with a very decent pension, uh, something that uh, I don't know if I wish that was an option for myself now. I'm not sure if I would actually do that. I'm not sure I'd want to stay in. I try to want to stay in one place for that long. Doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore? An old line for an old, an old song. But he's, he's reaching out to old friends, and my mother told me that there are a couple of his friends, people from way back in the day. I don't remember what era of his life, but, you know, his, his youth, uh, probably his early 20s. And one of them wants to reach out to another one of them. They've they've lost touch with each other over the past several decades. They're both in their early 70s now. But one of them wants to reach out to the other one and say, hey, you know, back in the day when we knew each other, I want to thank you for making me a Democrat. Like basically you talking me into being a Democrat. So I, I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but the way she put it, it sounds like, you know, there was this guy who was a Republican. His friend kind of stepped in and said, okay, we need to have an intervention. He sort of talked him into being a Democrat. 
steered him away from being a conservative, made him into a liberal. And this other guy says, he's saying now, he's thinking, I would like to thank you for having put me onto the life course of being a Democrat because it would have been a mistake to be a Republican. My mother told me this story, and I, this is one of those things I hear. Like sometimes you hear something and you just you don't know how to react. Like there just are no words. You can't even figure out what to say. You can't even figure out what to think. It takes you a while to kind of put together the reaction in your head. Like I just sort of, my mom told me that, and I was like, that is weird. That is a very, very weird thing that you just said to me. That, that's strange. I, I didn't quite know how to respond to it. I didn't even know how to react to it. And so I thought about it a little bit, and I realized that there's so much encapsulated in that story, the perspectives of those two people, that I, I just I can't even relate to it. The thing is, the, the whole identity of Republican or Democrat is not something that I identify with. I would not take either label on myself. That, that's, that's not who I would be. That's not part of my identity at all. If I have a political identity, it's the idea that, you know, neither side is right, and I kind of need to pay attention to both sides and figure out where the truth is. Figure out which side it's on, if I think it's there, you know, where do my values actually fall? In my experience, my values tend to shake out on both sides of the political spectrum. So I'm a moderate. And I think that's, for me, that's the correct way to be. The thought that the thought that maybe early on in your youth, you would pick a course, like you would sit there and say, there are two paths. I can either be a Republican or a Democrat. I better be very, very careful about which path I get on, because once I pick one, that's going to be it for life. You know, I can't go back on it. I really can't change my mind. And the fact that like somebody would see another person with political views and say, you know, the path that you're on is definitely the wrong one. So I'm going to help you course correct and get out to the right path. And then later, one of these people who, you know, had an intervention done to them, they look back and they say, yeah, I've been on this one path my whole life. And thank God, because it was it's in hindsight, it was the correct one. And the other one would have been wrong. That is so alien to me. That is so weird. It's so weird to think that anybody would, one, pick a political side and say, that's who I am and that's who I'm going to be. And they would look back on their life and say, yeah, that was, that was who I am. That's the path I was on. I identified with that for all those years. And thank God, because I wouldn't want to be on the other side now. There's so much of that that just makes absolutely no sense to me. It's bizarre. Why, why would you? I don't get it. So that's, that's, I don't know. So there's a lot about politics I do not understand, but. The thing is, like, I, I would like to actually do an episode about game theory. If there's, if there's one subject I would say people should study if you want to have a paradigm shift about how the world operates, if you want to, like, suddenly see things in a whole new light, and I mean almost everything, I would suggest that you look at game theory. Now, game theory is a a branch of mathematics that, oddly enough, has applications to the social sciences in a very pragmatic sort of way, in a way that actually gives things that don't have quantifiable predictive power, it actually gives it quantifiable predictive power. And it's a, it's a question of what the right decision is to make when your decision is based on what other 
what decisions other people around you are making. So it's not just what decision you would make based on circumstances. It's when there's multiple individuals making decisions and you're one of them and you have to figure out what's the optimal decision based on the decision everybody else will make. And of course, the quintessential example of this is the prisoner's dilemma, where you have two people brought in for, you know, being complicit in a crime. You separate the two of them and you say to each of them, okay, confess to the crime and we'll go easy on you. We'll give you a drastically reduced sentence. But the other guy, the other guy will not get a reduced sentence uh, if you confess and know that we're saying the same thing to the other guy. Now, of course, if these are two very, very good friends, they will have colluded in advance and said, well, in this contingency, don't roll over on the other one. But that's very, very unlikely to have happened. It's, that's unlikely to have been worked out in advance. And even if it has, how do you know you can trust that person? I mean, the only that is the the optimal outcome for everyone is that nobody confesses. But if you think that there's a good chance the other person will confess, it's in your own best interest. It's in your own self-interest to confess and get the reduced sentence. Because if you don't and the other person confesses, you end up with a much many more years in prison or, you know, whatever, what a much more stiffer penalty. So that's, of course, the most well-known example. I don't think it's even the most interesting example. Game theory has ramifications in evolution, biology, for example. There was a evolutionary biologist. I don't want to say he's an evolutionary biologist. He wrote about evolutionary biology, but he was generally a scientist who wrote a lot about many aspects of biology, one of those polymaths named John Maynard Smith, and he took the ideas of game theory, which had been proposed by von Neumann around economics. And von Neumann is known for his uh, contributions to the field of computation. Um, a lot of our paradigms in computers come from him. But he devised this sort of way of looking at how decisions should be made, like the optimal decision to be made based on other people's decisions. And Maynard Smith applied this to uh, biology, to evolution, namely to the question of altruism. So how is it that altruism can evolve when really you have a population of self-interested organisms? You know, how can there be social cohesion agreement when really self-interest of the individual is generally for the benefit of the individual? And of course, you could ask the question, well, how, how exactly? Well, I think that pretty much summarizes it. Um, but what he did is he figured out a way of basically explaining the ratio of aggressive versus cooperative behavior that exists in a population of organisms and how that could be stable. And I think all of this is fascinating. I, of course, don't want to dive into it because I think I wouldn't do it justice very well right now, kind of off the cuff. But but it's it's an absolutely fascinating subject. And I think it's if there's one thing I would say, at least mathematically, we should introduce into public school, people could understand it better. That would probably be it. I do wonder about public education. Of course, that's one of those things that's unlikely to change because so much of it is entrenched. We have teachers trained to do, you know, teach these particular subjects. And we have, we have, of course, a lot of 
administration, a lot of resources that are allocated around particular versions of English, around reading these particular books for English class, around these branches of mathematics and so on and so forth. Like in order to change any of the curriculums in public education would be a massive and expensive undertaking. And it would have to be, you'd have to prove somehow that it's worthwhile to a bunch of people who probably don't want to mess with the system at all. It's an interesting question to ask, but if if you were going to change one thing about public education, like if you had the power to just wave a magic wand and tomorrow children in, let's say, high school are going to learn about X instead of Y, like one subject gets replaced with another one, and it's something that generally isn't taught in high schools, what would it be? What would you introduce and why? I don't really have a good answer to that question. I feel like when I was in high school, there was actually a psychology course, and that was more of an elective. It wasn't something that was required. It was something you could opt into, and there was one teacher who taught it part-time. I think she taught, I want to say, English the rest of the time. But it was just something that was kind of offered on a lark. It was a one-off thing, and it's certainly not part of the standard, whatever it is, the standard core, the core, whatever they whatever they whatever the thing is that you have to use to prepare students for higher education in public school. I was thinking this morning about how crazy it is, how much information there is out there. So, I mean, if you go back to primitive times, there's knowledge that the tribe has, and this has to be sort of handed down. You know, you have, you have your lore, you have your knowledge, like these are the plants you can eat and these are the plants you should not eat. And here's how you prepare them. Here are some recipes. Here are some animals you avoid. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of knowledge that is held by the older generation that is passed down to the new generation. And this is what keeps, this sort of contributes to the overall benefit of the community. We have actually reached an age where there is so much information that needs to be handed down from our elders to our youth that we spend a significant portion of our youth until we're 18 years of age, like well past sexual maturity when, like when we can bear children. We basically have to spend full time going to school, learning all of that information. That is how much knowledge we have acquired. And that is really a drop in the bucket. That is only a preparation for one day going on to learn specialized knowledge in one particular area that you want to use in order to make a mark on the world or earn a living for yourself. 12, 13 years of our lives are allocated towards just learning the basic information, like what used to be just handed down from parents to children that has been institutionalized in the form of public education. Like at some point, there was so much knowledge to be passed down that we have to somehow structure this in a way that's systematized. You know, it's not just on the, on the, not just on the, on the, uh, why, why can't I talk? It's not just on the, on the parents to figure out how to do it. Although I have to say, if education were more on the parents, like I know, I know homeschooling is a controversial thing. And to be honest, I don't quite understand why that is. I'm not sure I would homeschool my kids. I don't think that's really a good idea. But if somebody wants to homeschool their kids, you know, or if they want to have control over, 
you know, the people that are teaching their kids in a more granular way. They want to keep it inside the home. I don't really see the downside of that. I mean, more power to you if you can, if you have the time or the resources to do it. More power to you. Go for it. What, what, what do I care? If that were the case, if more people were homeschooled, if it was less institutionalized, then curriculum could change more over time. Like it would be more sort of grassroots. So if the, if the curriculum had to change, if it had to be more adaptable in such a way as to prepare children for the real world instead of just being the educational material like the curriculum that it always had been because of traditionalism, it would be much more flexible, it would be much more adaptable, and it would change much more readily. Just sort of as an emergent property of the community if it wasn't institutionalized in the public school system. So if we sort of decided collectively as a culture, yeah, you know, maybe psychology should be a part of what our children learn in their 12 years of grade school. If everybody were homeschooled, if it was more of a decentralized thing and people were still in touch with each other, that could spread much more easily. Like essentially things would flow, ebb and flow much more in line with what is actually required. And it wouldn't be this rigid thing. For a very long time, I've kind of been thinking about religion in that way. One of my favorite expressions by Jung was to say that the point of religion is to block religious experience from people. Like really the best thing about what what you would call religion can offer you is an experience that is completely and totally your own. Your own inner experience, a revelation that you personally have. That is what should be important and that is what should matter. And really, once you take that whole idea and institutionalize it into a something like a church, something like the Catholic Church, and you have a pope, and it's this big thing that is structured and, and rigid, then what you can experience through that is going to be limited to what organizations are capable of, what institutions are capable of. And I think that's kind of missing the point. It really should be more individualized. And in that case things can ebb and flow much more readily, uh, especially in response to individual needs. People can sort of figure out what it is that they need for themselves. Now, I've never taken that idea, which I think is beneficial to consider, in, at least for oneself, and applied it to education, to think that maybe if education was more decentralized and more based on local communities deciding for themselves what it is that they want. And it wasn't some, it wasn't a set of curriculum that was decided at the federal level and codified in, in the federal level. And it wasn't, if it wasn't standard, how exactly would that affect things? How would that make things better? How would it make things worse? I think it would certainly make things dynamic. It would they basically would make things less resistant to change. But then there'd be less standardization across the whole country. Maybe people don't end up. I don't know. Maybe it is you move the you move the marker a little bit. Like we all end up learning the same things until we're 18 years of age. And then if we pursue education beyond that, that's when things tend that's when things tend to diverge. You know, people I went to high school with, we all learned the same shit for 12 years. And in college, even the people I went to high school with, we all ended up in very different places, knowing very different things. 
uh, not just because of our experiences, but because of what we studied in college. Now, maybe there's some point at which we should move the goalpost back and say it's not 18 years of age, but it's 12 years of age. You know, you start to go down your own path. It's more tailored to you and your interests earlier on. Why should it be 18 years of age? Should it be 18 years of age, I guess would be the question. I don't know. I've kind of stumbled into turf here that I, I don't actually know what the answer is. I leave the question out there for you to, to ponder for yourself. So I think, I think California is, things are of course bad in California and California is quick to jump on these things. San Francisco was one of the original cities, one of the first cities in the country to say, we have to go on lockdown. They did that much earlier than, than other places. Maybe not early enough, arguably, but nobody knew we were going to end up here. And things are bad in California. You look at what's happening in Los Angeles, less so in the Bay Area. The Bay Area, things are still pretty stable. But I think California tonight is about to go back on full lockdown, like they're going to close up restaurants and, and retail places. It's going to be much more essential businesses only, and restaurants are going to be open for takeout only. There's going to be no dine-in. I think they're about to shut things down very stringently. I think that's almost certainly the right move. crazy though they do need to do that here michigan is of course uh not in a good spot either it's not good anywhere out there right now this thing is everywhere and it is it is out there infecting people in staggering numbers it is scary anyway i don't need to harp on that you you you've been reading all about that it was a strange feeling when this first hit, all of a sudden, all of us were in the same situation together. We're all holed up and we're all reading the same news. We're all watching the same things happening on television, all stories about this one thing. We're all suddenly aligned, almost globally, on this one thing that's going on. That's just sort of become part of the norm. That no longer feels strange. Like we're all sort of tracking this one story, this one thing that's going on. Things are less fragmented. Yet I don't feel like there's a whole lot of cohesion. I don't feel like I don't feel like we're closer together. We have each other's backs anymore than we did before. I don't know what kind of cultural shift that actually has resulted in, and I don't know if there's any cultural impact that will outlive the pandemic. I don't know. To be honest, I think there's very little that has happened in this country that merits people having to pay attention and be ready to fend for themselves since the end of World War II. I think World War II was a time when there was a very distinct enemy, and I think it wasn't complete consensus across the board, but I think most people were generally on board with there's, there's something bad happening in Europe and we have to fight it. I think generally there was a spirit of self-sacrifice. I'm going to forego this or that. You know, I'm going to not buy certain things 
I'm going to do what I can to help the community because there is something we need to unify against. We haven't really had anything that's forced us to do that, uh, at least not in the United States. Like culturally, we have not been forced to do that since World War II. As a matter of fact, when, what, like 9-11? That sort of brought us together, but it wasn't like we all pulled together and made sacrifices in order to defeat Al-Qaeda. Like that, it hasn't quite the same. I don't feel like we've pulled together and made collective sacrifices and we've said for the greater good, we are going to do this. feels like there's a lot of people just saying, you know what, the hell with it. I'm doing what I want to do. That might put other people at risk. I'm not going to wear a mask, but don't care. It's what I want. There is that. And of, of course, there are numerous examples of people who have pulled together. You know, there were examples very early on of people saying, I'm stuck at home. I'm not doing anything. I know that there are lots of people who are at risk who cannot venture out to get groceries for themselves. I would love to help out and help those people because I know that they're at risk. And I guess there's been both. And I, there, I guess there's always, there's, there's always a measure of both. Probably what I wasn't seeing in World War II. What we don't see from looking back at history is all of the selfishness. You look back at history, I guess it tends to be rose colored glasses. This is what I wonder about. I, I mentioned this in an earlier podcast, and I touched upon this earlier. Like, I know there wasn't consensus. Like, yes, when we actually went up against Germany, when we went up against Japan, when the United States entered World War II, I know that was controversial in some ways. I know that not everybody got on board and said, I'm going to self-sacrifice. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to give up for the greater good. Probably more people did it then that are doing it now maybe just as a matter of economic necessity like people had habits from the depression there was a sort of scarcity mindset at play it's like well if the resources are resources are going to get where they are most needed i might have to forego some of them for themselves we live in an era of such plenty we don't really have to is there a reason we should stop i don't know treating ourselves to this or that for the benefit of the soldiers who are currently fighting overseas or for the healthcare workers that are, yeah, because I guess the healthcare workers are the people who are currently fighting the battle. And so I guess the question is, would people sacrifice PPE? Would people have said, I'm okay giving up, you know, masks. I'm okay sacrificing my, my supply of masks that protect me from this virus to give them to Healthcare workers who are in the trenches at the moment. The thing is, how much dissent there was, how much selfishness there was during World War II, saying, like, I'm not going to play ball because I don't want to sacrifice what I have for the, the greater good, so to speak. How much of that was going on when the United States entered World War II? It's kind of like the question of, you know, how many people were not in favor of us entering the war in the first place, even when, you know, we were attacked at Pearl Harbor? There were people who were isolationists, said, you know, what's going on in Europe, that's none of our business, and it would be a waste of our time and effort to go over there and engage in the fight. There were arguments about it. I'm sure there were people who protested the way people protested are entering the Iraq War in 2003 not entering the starting the Iraq war in 2003. 
exactly how much protest was there? What did it look like? You know, how strong was it? These are things I don't know. Like culturally, what was happening in the United States on the home front? Well, we were fighting a war over in Europe and sending our boys over there to, to fight for, fight against the tyranny of Mussolini and Hitler. I don't know. I don't know what it was like just to be an American living in the United States during the late 30s and early 40s. And this is what I would like to know. This is what I'd like to see a documentary about. Is that I want to know what was the average person's life like? What sense did they have about what was going on in the war? What were people talking about? What was the gossip? This is first and foremost what I'd like to, what I'd like to learn. I guess if there's something I'd like to learn, this is something I should consider writing about. Like I was reading Linus Pauling's book on general chemistry this morning. I've read it a couple times. I just discovered that I, I forgot I have the Kindle of it. So I, I started rereading it. Very good book about chemistry. And I realized that as much as I've studied chemistry in the past, like I don't actually know any practical knowledge. Like I don't know, I don't have chemistry knowledge that would help me be a better cook. For example, the question came up recently, you know, my mother asked something like this or that metal, does it rust? You know, which metals rust and which do not? I don't actually know. I feel like if you study chemistry, you shouldn't just know how to balance these equations and understand like flighty concepts that are, you have no practical application. Like you should know answers to these sorts of practical questions. And I was like, that's the, that's the chemistry book I want is one that says like, so I heard, I heard an expression that lately somebody said that a really good writer, they're able to write about universal themes, but they're able to talk about them in a very personal way. So essentially they talk about their own personal experiences, but they, those personal experiences touch upon the universal. So even though you're talking about yourself, you're not just being solipsistic, you're talking about things that are generalizable enough that they're part of the core human experience that people, most people who are, you know, reading you can relate to you. They understand what you're saying. I think that's a very, very difficult balance to strike, but I think that's very, very good. It's very, very good advice. And I think that can be true for like science education. If I were going to write a book about chemistry, and I, I can't do that. Let me put it another way. If I were going to read a book about chemistry, I would want a book that does something roughly like that. So there are elements of chemistry in everyday experience. I would want it to be something that says, here are the kinds of metals that rust. Here is a, an overview of the hard science that backs that up and kind of gives you an intuition around the day-to-day -day thing that you're learning about. You know, people who can cook really, really well. I think this is probably a trend started by, I don't know if it was started by Alton Brown, but Alton Brown and his Good Eats, of course, raised the standard for what people expected from a cooking show. Like basically, you, you should not just be able to say, here's a recipe, but you should be able to say, here's a recipe and here are some basic principles of the food we're talking about and here's some of the history and here is... Here is some information that will give you an intuition around how to kind of move around and be flexible and do your own thing. Like those kinds of resources are the ones that I find the most um, 
informative and the most educational. And probably that's something I, I don't, I don't quite know what that resource would be in my own craft, which is to say I'm, I'm a software engineer. I, I write code for a living and there are certain books you can pick up. They're the ones that are usually about what are called design patterns. Like, so you can structure code this particular way. Here's a recipe you can follow in order to make your code more maintainable for this or that reason. You know, so if you have to go back and make changes to it, there's a minimum of disruption you cause to things that are currently using the code. Uh, is basically the example of a design pattern. That's a recipe. Now, what I'm less clear about and what I, what I think is less developed in the discipline of computer science or in, in the field of writing code of software development, I wouldn't say software engineering, but in software development is something like Alton Brown. The idea of, okay, here is what the recipe is, but let's go beyond that and talk about why that is the recipe. And here's some basic principles that would give you an intuition around why you should do this or that instead. Now that I think about it, there are some books by a guy named Robert Martin, who's fondly known in the computer programming community as Uncle Bob. Is his name Uncle? They call him Uncle Bob. He's written some books like Clean Architecture, Clean Code, and he, he tries to do that. I think he tries to talk about design paradigms. He tries to say, here's why you would structure your code this way. Here's the benefit that would offer and here's the trade-off. If you don't do this, you might do that instead. And here's the, here's what you're giving up in order to get in any case. I think he does make some effort to, to do that. It may just be so subtle and abstract that it's difficult to retain those things. I've certainly read those books and I think they're useful, but Maybe it's because learning how to cook from Alton Brown is inherently more interesting and more engaging and more generally applicable to day-to-day -day life than reading the Alton Brown of software. That could be. That could be. I got to say, like, I used to love studying com computer programming books. I used to love picking up books about programming languages or about this or that framework or about algorithms and just studying those like crazy, just sitting down and focusing on them for hours at a time. I loved doing that. I have to sort of titrate now. I have to sort of just do bits and pieces here and there. I can't focus for long stretches of time on those sorts of things anymore. And I don't know if it's because I now do them for a living. Like I now spend enough of my life, you know, the hours of my day doing that as a matter of course. I don't know if it's because I've become saturated with computer science and knowledge. I don't actually, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but it's something I have a lot of trouble sitting down and focusing on recreationally for a very long period of time. I wish that weren't true. I do wish there was something that would kickstart my interest in it. And I think it would be something like Alden Brown. I'm not sure. Not sure if I've found that yet. I'm not sure if that even exists. Computer science is still a very new field. It's kind of like consumer genomics. Like 
this is a field I used to work in. I used to work at one of those genetic testing companies where you would order a kit, spit into a tube, send it off, sequence your DNA, and they would like give you some reports on the internet. You've heard of this. I used to work at one of those, and I used to be the one responsible for putting some of the reports onto the internet. I think that consumer genomics, like the idea of somebody wants to know what their DNA can tell them, and here's something you can productize and sell to them, which allows you to make a profit and allows somebody else to gain knowledge about themselves that is useful to them. I don't think we've even scratched the surface. The potential there is massive, and I don't think it's been realized at all. It's just too new. It's just so new. We only sequenced the human genome, what, 15 years ago we we finished doing that? We've done nothing on the frontier of molecular biology. We've, we've got so much to explore. There is so much untapped potential there. And I mean, computer science, the way we use computers now, the way we build software, I would say it's, it's also very nascent. It's uh, more than 15 years old. But it's not a whole lot older than that. There are some disciplines. Hell, you can look at philosophy. I mean, even even modern philosophy, if you're going to say like the Enlightenment alone, that started four or five hundred years ago. That's old, man. Computer science is a baby. I guess actually most scientific disciplines are, are babies at this point because science is not that old. The scientific method, we have not had that for a very long time. Scientific method is something I don't know if I actually know enough about that. I don't know if I know. If you asked me what the scientific method was, I could kind of stumble my way through a definition. I think I kind of have an intuitive sense of it, but it's complicated enough that I wonder, I wonder if I couldn't benefit from learning more about it more deeply. I don't think there's very many people in the world working in fields where they would not benefit from having a better understanding of how to go about doing things scientifically. I, I feel like epistemologically, that's the correct approach to tackling almost anything, any sort of problem. But I don't know if I just know enough. Like there are some things you kind of say, well, I wish I could take a deep dive on this particular subject. But once you actually like open up a textbook and start reading about it, you're like, you know, I this is all very esoteric and not applicable. And it's it's a nice idea to learn more about it. But I don't need to know all of this. It's kind of like it's interesting to work, like learn about quantum physics, you know, but the fact that there's like this whole idea of quantum teleportation, like the particles will jump between barriers where that would be impossible at the, you know, the, the macro level, at our level of reality. That is necessary to make light switches work. You don't have to know that or anything about that mechanism in order to just flip a light switch and the light switch does what it's supposed to do for you. So there's a point at which more knowledge doesn't benefit you. And I, I kind of am wondering, could I benefit more from knowing more about the scientific method? Or do I just know enough from what I learned in grade school and what I've picked up since then? I'm not sure. Damn, it's a beautiful night out. I mean, it's very, very gray, but it's actually reasonably, reasonably warm out. By that, I mean it's like 40 degrees. Reasonably warm out, yes, in the middle of no, 
in December. It is uh, 40 degrees out. That's what I call warm. I guess I'm kind of getting used to being somewhere where winter is coming. But yeah, the sun's going down. Christmas lights are starting to actually hold some force. People are coming and going, greater numbers. It's a nice day out. How are you doing out there? Any of you still might be listening to this after a couple of hours. Is your weekend going okay? Unwinding from the work week. You getting charged up, ready to go back to things. Are you furloughed so you're not even working so it's all just one big vacation? So a lot of people are in a situation now where they're, they're on vacation, they're not working, and it's uh, not voluntary, and it's got to be terrifying because things are getting desperate. If you've, if you've not been earning money for the last nine months because you just can't work because of this whole thing, that was something I thought about a lot in the first month or two. Like This is affecting people very, very seriously. I've kind of lost sight of thinking about that, but it's it's got to be, the problem has got to be compounded for people who are in that situation. Jesus. Yeah. Just be grateful that I'm able to work now and actually, like, do the job I'm supposed to do. Have purpose without having to put myself at risk. I even have the option of working. In any case, I think I'm going to call it. I'm finally at the point now. If you're a regular listener and you actually listen to my things all the way through, you know there's always a point at the end, the last couple of minutes, where suddenly I switch. Like I'm kind of like stumbling through my words. I'm kind of like putting sentences together in a very haphazard, ad hoc way. And all of a sudden at the end, I sort of pick up and say, well, this is the time where I close. And I sort of ramble through the same basic points every single time. Like suddenly it's not just me meandering. Suddenly I know with a purpose what it is I'm saying. Suddenly I'm much more articulate and I get to the point much more, more faster. Or much faster, not more faster, more fast. Yeah, this is the place where I say, you know, it's been real. It's been great talking with you all. And I do mean that. Wherever you are, I do hope. I do hope you're taking care of yourself. I do hope you're doing. Uh, I do hope you're, you're you're staying sane amidst all this. Take care of yourself. Take care of the people around you. And yeah, we'll get through this. I know we'll get through this. I wish I was a more positive person for times like these. I wish I was more optimistic. I wish my uh, tone of voice was more cheerful because really I think that's what I think that's what people need I don't think people need deep intellectual thoughts but that is what that is what I'm thinking I am thinking I hope I hope wherever you are out there you're you're taking care of what you can you're doing what you can for yourself and for people around you and I hope it's looking in a manner of speaking, like a white Christmas for you. Take care. Until next time. Be well. This is Jim signing off. Take care. Cheers.